Great. We continue on in our series through the Psalms this summer, looking at we've entitled Pilgriming with the Psalms. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It is a journey. And along that journey, like any long road, there are various experiences we have along that path. Some are joyous. Some are very difficult. In particular, we have been looking at the pilgriming with the Psalms as the psalmist connects to his emotions um, in, along the journey of the Christian life. And so we've looked at guilt and we've looked at the joy of forgiveness. We've looked at doubt. And this morning we come to fear. Fear. And we look together and take this, this morning's sermon from Psalm chapter 3. Psalm 3, it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. By the way, those, those titles that you find in your Bible, some, some translations don't have them, and that's a mistake. Those are part of God's word. Um, Jesus understood them to be a part of God's word, so they do matter. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against many. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the reading of God's holy and arid infallible words. The grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Uh, the context of the psalm is given to you there at that, the prologue of the psalm that I read. A psalm of David when he fled from, his, from Absalom, his son. This psalm tells us of David, a man who has every reason in his life to be full of unbelievable fear. Um, while David has been preoccupied with leading uh, the nation of Israel, his son has undermined his authority and has been preparing for a rebellion and a coup against his own father. He has been establishing a base from which to uh, raise up his coup in the town of Hebron. He has been drawing people to him as the judge of Israel. And like many coups, like you may have seen this week in Turkey, the revolt was sudden, unexpected, and immediate took David and much of Jerusalem by surprise, so much so that David and all those who remained loyal to him had to flee the city and flee across the river into the Kidron Valley. In fact, we find multiple narratives of this in kind of the historical books of the Old Testament of how David fled. And he not only experienced the the, uh, deprivation of running away from his home, of losing his power and his throne and the having an army pursue him and seeking to kill him, but also he had the, the loss of emotional and relational loss. His own son rebelled against him. We find that his greatest counselors, his closest friends, went over to Absalom's side. And then even as David is leaving the city of David, there is one who, while David is down, stands from a hillside and yells at David. A man named Shimei said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom and you have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. This is what has gone on in David's life the day before he writes this psalm. David is a man running for his life. Everything he loves, everything he cherishes is under, a th- is under threat. David indeed is a man facing unbelievable Fears. 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 People, we feel fear in different ways and with different levels of intensity, but all of us experience fear because we cannot control the world that we live in. Fear is our response 
to uncertainty in our worlds. It's our response in the face of danger, to the face of threats. Fear happens when things that we love and cherish are threatened. And fear occurs in the gap between the place where we feel unable or out of control and being able to engage with and deal with those threats. Where what we long for and cherish that we no longer feels secure. Fear is provoked in us when the threat of physical danger or relational danger exposes our inability to preserve what we most love and most cherish. If we are honest with ourselves, we must, be on, we must acknowledge that we are a people not only who are full of fears, but we are driven by fear. Even the most successful CEO in the world is driven by fear. And this happens from the very first moment of our lives. What is the sound a baby makes when they come out of the womb? They cry. Now, we looked at doubt last week. Are babies experiencing doubt when they come out of the womb? Is there a God? Is that what they're crying about? The deep questions. Are those cries of grief? Well, it's apparent some kind of a grief, but babies can't really process grief. No, when babies come out of the womb, it is a wail, a shriek of fear. They're asking the questions, not really, not consciously, but this is what their fears are saying. What is happening to me? Why is it so cold? Why is this person slapping me? And where did my apartment go? (laughs) All the things that I love and hold dear has gone. You come into the world experiencing fear. It is probably the most primal Emotion that we experience is fear. It's the begins with us from the day that we're born. And it's so primal and so surrounds us and so drives us and it's so present in our lives. For many of us, talking about fear is like a fish talking about water. It's simply the air that we breathe. It's the life that we live in. It surrounds us. And the only way we know that we're actually driven by fear is when a shark comes running up to us or swimming up to us, as it may be. This is what David has here. He has some serious sharks in his life, but often God brings the serious sharks to reveal to us how much we are driven by fear, how we live in a sea of fears. You see, fear isn't only the terror we feel at the announcement of life-threatening news. Fear is borne out with us, within us, through simply the threat of physical pain and harm. It's an uncertainty that gnaws underneath us, within us. It may be triggered by the most slightest pain and disappointment in our life. Fear comes in the forms of worry. That's fear. Angst or anxiety is fear. Nervousness is fear. Terror is fear. Horror is fear. The the difference between those words and the descriptions of them is merely talking about the intensity of the feeling, not necessarily the problems that we face. We all experience fear in different levels of intensity based on who we are and how we are wired. For instance, if you were to walk, suddenly surprise a woman at her house and her house is not picked up and clean, some, woman, some women, when you knock on that door, will be stricken with fear. It shatters them, the thought of having someone see their house as dirty. Others, they're like, whatever. It doesn't bother them. It's based often by how we're wired and how we want to show and prove ourselves what kind of gods that we serve, I'm sure that many of you can identify with this. If we actually stop and thinking about it, that fear drives us. Every day you wake up and you go face a battle with your fears. You go to go to work, right? You're battling a boss who is unfair, coworkers that are often full of acidic thoughts and words, It feels as if everyone is trying to defeat us, to get ahead of us, to push us down. That's fear that we're facing. Listen, David faces fear from his own family, right? He's being attacked by his son Absalom. And for the most most of us, we won't be attacked. Literally, we don't have to fear for our children trying to kill us. But much of you, many of you, wake up every morning with the feeling that you're you're facing your children who hate you. That the greatest enemies of your life are your kids. Some of you, it draws even closer, and it may be your spouse. 
The greatest fear in your life is what your spouse thinks about you. She is not your ally, or he or she has become a part of the frightening array of fears that threaten our life. So what do we do with our fears? How do we engage with our fears? Well, as we're, the whole reason why we're going through the Psalms is that David does such a good job of engaging, of connecting with our experience, and then walking us through the process of what it looks like to face our fears. So let's follow David. What does he do? And how does that help us? Here's the first thing we see in how David helps us. First, we see that he processes his fears before the Lord. David teaches us that we are to process our fears before the Lord. What does David do? Right out of the gate, verses 1 and verses 2. David comes out and says in verse 1, he says he he acknowledges that he is scared, that he is afraid. Verse 1, he has many foes and they are actively and aggressively moving towards him to destroy him. David is in a place of great fear. By definition, enemies are surrounding him. That is fear. He is being threatened. Now this makes sense that David would fear these things, right? When people are trying to kill you, that is, it is an appropriate thing to feel fear. It is a God-given thing to feel fear. Like the deer who's standing at the water and suddenly views a, something that might threaten it. It tightens up. It has fear for a reason. I remember as a kid, this, this experience happened to me. I was outside in my front yard playing football and I was practicing punting. And as any young kid, my punts were rather errant. And they went into my neighbor's yard And my neighbor had two enormous Great Danes. Now, they usually lived behind a fence. And I punted my football into their front yard and mindlessly walked over to their front yard to pick up my football, not recognizing that for some reason the two Great Danes were not locked up as they normally were, but were standing right near my football. And as I went to grab the football, as I came up, they locked eyes with me. And their immediate response, oddly enough, I don't know why if they felt threatened by little old me, but they both growled and took a beeline towards me. Now, this is not what you're supposed to do, but there was an explosion in my head that said what? Run! <laughs> and I did. I have never, in fact, it was one of those like time warp moments where I don't remember moving from their yard to my front door. That's how fast I was moving. I would love to have been timed at that moment. <laughs> fear. It is a natural thing to run away. Run away is what fear says, and it ought to. And this made me think, and this is simply just a ridiculous anecdote, but in Marty Python, you don't, don't you love that scene? When they're facing the little white rabbits, the ferocious, insidious rabbits, and they're being told, oh, oh my, the, the rabbit is fearsome. And they say, no, that's nothing. And so they send someone out to take out the rabbit. And suddenly the rabbit jumps up and bites someone's head off. And so the whole great group of them pursuing the Holy Grail are going to defeat this insidious rabbit. And they run out and they seek to slaughter the rabbit only to have, them have the rabbit destroy them. And what do they say? Run away, run away, run away. That is what fear says in us and it ought to. This kind of fear is good. It is a self-preservation sort of fear. If if your kid is on a playground and way up high and on the top of the monkey bars and you find your kid falling off of those monkey bars, fear drives you to do things that you would never be able to do. You may barely be be able to get out of the, the lazy boy in your living room, but suddenly you are moving swifter than a cat to catch that kid. Right? Your whole body recoils and it allows you to act. Fear is that physically felt... To, uh, a physical feeling to perceive danger and allows us to engage with that danger rightly. Fear is healthy. Healthy fear is like this. It, get, it engages you into action and your right activity. But like many good things that God has given us, it gets distorted. See, in this passage and in this cry of David, he also reveals that there's another type of fear. There is a fear that can run deeper than simply that natural primordial fear that says that we are to run away. There's a fear that instead of driving us to action, drives us into inaction. That causes us to run away, to run away from things that we should run towards and engage with. There is a fear that can become obsessive and perpetual and constant so that it destroys our hearts and our souls and leaves us with no joy in God and no joy in the world that God has given to us. 
And we experience this dark and crippling fear when this happens. When our God is threatened. Verse 2, look at what David says. Not only is he surrounded and people are threatening his life, but then he goes on to say this. He is essentially remembering what Shimei has said about him. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Listen, when someone points a gun at you, you feel fear. You feel threatened. But where you feel terror is when you realize that the gun that you have is not loaded. That the thing that you rest on for security from the world's threats and the world's dangers is no longer there for you. Listen, this is who your God is. Are what we look to and what we turn to for our, for our hope and for our security in a broken, dangerous world, that is our God's. The high point of our security. David is saying, not only am I threatened, but the very foundation, the very means of my salvation from all that threatens me, I'm now being told that is no longer for me. It is no longer near me. And in fact, God may be against me. Here's the paradigm. That David is living under three words within this heart fear. Three words, glory, shield, and confidence. Let me, I'm going to walk through this to try to explain this a little bit more. Your glory in this world is the thing that you most treasure and you most desire. But you most desire and treasure it because it is your hope and your security. That is your glory. Your shield are all those things that are placed around your glory, that your glory brings into your life, both to protect you and to protect that thing that you most treasure. Your secure shield is the thing that assures that your glory will stay safe and that your glory will keep you safe, that it will not be taken from you. And whether we have confidence or whether we have fear is based on our degrees of assurance That how well that thing, that glorious thing, and that shield will be able to protect us from the threats and dangers in our life. We feel degrees of fear based on the value of the thing that is threatened and the degree to which that thing that is threatened can protect us. All right, that was somewhat philosophical, narrow language. I hope you're able to follow that. Now, let me draw that out to try to make it a little bit more clear in this way. Now, there's two reasons why when we're threatened, we feel fear. Or two reasons. One is when the things that threaten you really can destroy your God. When the things that threaten you really can take away your glory. When the things that threaten you can really overcome the shields that your glory puts up. This is when you have a functional God. When your true, when your false functional God is in danger and it gets exposed. Listen, here, let me think of, it this, think of it this way. If money is your God, that is the thing that you treasure the most, but not only that, but money is your means of in dealing with all the dangers in this world, money will protect you from all the things that might hurt you. And suddenly the stock market falls, what happens? Are you a confident person or are you a fearful person? You're a crushed person. You're a fearful person. You have no longer any confidence that your God that you look to both as your greatest desire and as your greatest security can no longer, it can no longer protect you. This is what happens to us when these functional gods, these earthly glories, they come in a security system, but it's found that their security system, their shield doesn't work in the face of life's dangers and life's threats. And so what do we feel? We feel fear. We feel terror. We have no confidence. See, brothers and sisters, so often the reason why you are so full of anxiety and worry is because your heart is tied up emotionally in all sorts of false gods that you have looked to both as your greatest pleasure but also for your greatest security. Because you are tied up in them, when they are threatened, you feel threatened. You feel out of control. Your very life feels under attack. Well, that's one way. When our false gods are revealed to be false, we feel deep fear. The second way is the way in which I think the psalmist is feeling it here. And that is when the things that threaten you speak lies to you about the true, true, the true God that you serve. It is then you can also experience deep fear. 
The first person is not a believer. At the heart, at the core of who they are, their greatest desire is something other than God. The second person is a believer. But because of the lies of the world around them, they are tempted to go look to other things. Sometimes fear in this life is a result of having a weak God, but sometimes the threats in this world, the dangers that we face, the circumstances in our lives lie to us. And they can distort our perception of the truth. This is where your circumstances can change how you see. Threats and danger can create a false perception, not only about ourselves, about the world that we live in. See, dangers and threats by their very nature, right? Shadows in a kid's room at night, they're bigger than the entity that they're representing. That's the nature of threats and dangers. They lie to us and they say we're bigger than they really are. And that you are smaller than you really are, really are. But most damaging, what threats and dangers in this world, the lie that it communicates is that your God is smaller than you expected him to be. Illustration, let me, let me, let me give you this and, and connect it to probably one of the most uh, clear descriptions of when we feel fear, when you're, we're little children. When you're in your room, kids, at night, for kids, in some ways, their glory, their God is their parents, who they look to for their greatest security are their parents. Not only do they give them joy, but they give them hope and security. And the threat comes at night when mom and dad leave the room and they turn the light out and suddenly there is fear. The threat comes in the darkness. And we as parents don't necessarily may not understand the threat. We don't understand what's so threatening about the dark. We love the dark, right? Parents, we're like, yes, it's dark. I can go to sleep. We love the dark. Our kids hate the dark. The dark, but the darkness lies to our kids. And what are the lies that the darkness communicates to them? It tells them that their parents are not very close to them. It tells them that their parents are far off. It tells them that there are dangers lurking in the closet and under the beds. And therefore, they don't feel secure. They do not feel safe. And a nightlight will not do, will it? They're only that which gives them the most sense of security will do. It's you, mom and dad. You are the experience. See, fear lies about reality by making all evil seem all-conquering. Now, we know, parents, right? And this isn't what you tell your kids. You go in, your child is scared. Mommy and daddy. I, I literally used to do this with my child. I would count off how many steps daddy was away. I'm eight steps away, honey. Eight steps. I'm trying to speak to her the truth, but the darkness tells her I cannot see him. And this is what our circumstances do, that God is not near me. I don't hear his voice. I don't see him. I don't feel him. And therefore, I am afraid. The darkness lies to us and tells us that God is impotent to face all that threatens us. Or he is distant. Or in David's case, God may even be against us. Now, what are the results of this fear in our life? When we feel threatened like like this, when either our false gods get exposed or when we believe a lie about the true gods, what happens? Or any number of things happen as we engage and respond to our fears. Very often, the most natural way is one, we take control. But we take control and we do, we take control and we fly, we flee. But that fleeing looks different in different ways. It can be utter disengagement from the reality of the worlds, or it can be simply shrinking our worlds. Let me give you an example of this. If your children and their security is your great delight, parent, what happens when your 17-year-old comes to you and says, I want to go on a missions trip? Let's, let's say this. Parents, what happens to you when your beautiful 17-year-old daughter comes to you? Because you, your son, you're like, whatever. You're, 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 you're more dangerous in a car here in America. We know that. So you're fine to go overseas. My sweet, precious daughter, I don't know. Right? She's the apple of your eye, the delight of your soul. And she's going to go to a foreign country where it is dangerous. What is, what is it? The, the, if in the fear that you feel in that moment, what is your tendency? You want to shrink her world. No, you cannot go to a third world country. No, you cannot engage and enter into that broken part of this world. You want to pull her in closer to you and create a cocoon in your, in your world. This is what we do with our fears. It is a, a, the means by which we can take control by making our world small. So small that we can control it. We don't have to worry about this small little area that we live in. 
And even that is a lie, but we tell ourselves. We enter into comforts, right? This is protectionism. We don't, we allow, and what ends up happening is we allow our fears to imprison us. Do you see how this would keep you from actually, your fears become an issue of obedience? God says to give your money away. My money is my God. I look to my money to give me security in a broken world. I cannot give my money away, right? I have to hold on to it. I have to run away from what God has called me to do. Life must remain small and under our control because we don't trust the God that we serve or we serve a false God. And so we must be control of the world that we live in. But do you see what David does? See what David does with these fears? Okay, he's come to understand them. But where is he coming to understand his fears? And where is he processing his fears? Just like last week in regards to our doubts and the week before in regards to our guilt, this is a theme that runs throughout the Psalms. When David feels emotions, the terrifying emotions of the Christian life, what does he do? He takes them to God, the presence of the Lord. He does not hide back or shield his lack of faith. He does not shield his questions. He does not shield his fears, his fears that God may have abandoned him. But instead, what does he do? He cries out to God. He goes to prayer to God. God, will you answer me? He asks God the questions. God, is this true? The Shimei speak the truth that you've abandoned me, that I deserve your punishment. He's taking these questions to the Lord. Do you see the biblical approach here in regards to engaging with our fears? See, the world's approach is to say, listen, ignore it. Shrink your life. Make it all about you and the world that you can control. Or let your fears guide you. The biblical approach is, no, 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 don't let your fears guide you, but let them be a gauge to your soul. Let them help you understand what is going on in the depths of your heart and your soul so that you, then you can do this. See, only as you come to process your fears before the Lord can your fears be rightly answered. And that's the second thing we see David do. The first thing he does is he processes fears before the Lord, and before the Lord is where we can then answer our fears with the Lord. We answer our fears with the Lord. David answers his fears. In fact, he preaches to them. Right? You cannot... This is, this is a really valuable kind of idiom. It's this. You cannot... You should not listen to yourself. You have to talk to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his book on spiritual depression. He says, So many of our problems in life comes from listening to ourselves instead of talking and preaching to ourselves. You see, we have an inner voice and an inner monologue that is feeling the fears in our lives. But we need to bring in the voice of God through right preaching and right talking to ourselves. It is a conscious effort to speak to ourselves the truth of God's word and the truth of who God is. It helps over, speak over and more loudly than the voices of the world around us. David attacks his fears with truth, and he answers his fears, and his fears, his answers are spot on. I want you to see how he attacks the very heart of what his fears, what was going on with his heart and his soul in this moment. David gives three answers, three answers to his fears. Answer one is this. David answers the lies about God with the truth of God. What is the lie? The lie is this, that God has abandoned him, that God will not save him. It's the lie of Shimei. That's the lie that's in David's soul in verse 2. The terror is to David is that God has left him. But the first proclamation that he speaks to his heart and soul is what? That God is who for him? God is my what? Shield. Is a shield very good if it's far away from you? No, a shield is close to you and it surrounds you. This refers to the fact that David is proclaiming the truth to himself and he's answering his fears that God may have abandoned him by saying, no, 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 that is not the truth. Not only is God close to me, but he is the one who is protecting me. Not only is he not against me, but he is the, indeed the means of my salvation. I love one of the, the, the catechism questions that early on that I've taught my kids because it reflects them and it's something they can engage with in the midst of their fears at night. And it's this question, can you see God? And the answer to the catechism is this, it's no, but God can always see me. Here's, you can state that in many different ways. Can you feel God? No, I, I don't often feel God, but God is always close to me. Can you see God? No. Can you hear God all the time? No, but he's always speaking to me if I will listen to him. That's the first thing, David. He answers 
He answers all the, the lies that would say that God is not his shield, that God is not his salvation, but the truth that God is indeed his shield. Second answer, David answers and rebukes his false glory with the true glory. What's the second thing God, David says? Not only is God my shield, God is my glory, he says in verse 3. God is my true God, not these other things that I've depended on. What has happened to David in David's life? David has, has, is experiencing the fact that God is removing from him all other lesser glories from his life that he might trust in. What has happened to David in the, in the previous 24 to 48 hours? I trusted in my power. I was the king of Israel. What's happened? Gone. I, had a, I loved my family. I had all these kids. Re- wonderful relationship to my kids. Gone goes the family. I was a wealthy man. I had all the finances that I could ever want. Gone. I had health. Now I'm being threatened. Gone. I was loved by those around me. Now my closest counselors have abandoned me. Acceptance. Gone. God removes from David's life all the lesser glories that David might look to, all the false gods that David may be looking to for security in this life. We so often look to our lesser glories. We need something that's weightier. We need something that's better, and this is what God has called David to look to. The most weighty thing that we need is God himself. Mother Teresa said this, that we don't realize that God is all we need until God is all we have. And the wonderful truth about this answer is this, is that when you have God as your glory, when he is your God, all other things can be taken from you. Your finances can be taken from you. Your relationships can be taken from you. Your wealth, your health, all those things can be gone. But God can never be taken from you. So he's speaking the truth to himself. The third answer is this. David answers directly to his fearful emotions with confidence. What's the last thing he says? The Lord is my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, this doesn't mean that David becomes proudful or arrogant. That phrase, lifter of my head, means that God has given him confidence and encouragement in the midst of his fear and his discouragement. David says, I'm a crush, I'm afraid, I have no confidence, but now the Lord has lifted my head. Why? How can God be the lifter of his head? Because he is his glory and he is his shields. They build on each other. Listen, if David's glory and his shield is his finances, those things have both gone away and therefore he has reason to fear. If his glory and his shield is his physical well-being and in the great army that is around him, then he has reason to fear because that's gone as well. But if God is his glory, if God is his shield, then God is also his confidence. This speaks, goes right into the heart of the way we often deal with our fears. You see, when, all, when our glory and our shield is taken from us, what we have to do is we have to take over control. What David is saying, no, when God is your glory and when God is your shield, guess what? You don't need to take over control. You can have great confidence not only in yourselves, but in what God is going to do for you. Now, here's the question, though. Why, how can David have any sort of confidence, any sort of confidence that one, that God is his shield, two, that God is still his glory, and that three, is God, that God is lifting up his head? One, his circumstances would say otherwise. Two, does David deserve to remain on the throne? This is near the end of David's life. Here's the sins that David has kind of committed. David has committed adultery. David has then um, had someone killed in light of that adultery. David has married many wives. David, by the way, was a failure as a father. Did you know that one of his sons raped one of his other daughters? Guess who killed that son who did that? Absalom. Because you know what? David did nothing to punish the rapist's son. David deserves this. David deserves to lose his throne. He's been a bad leader. He's been a bad father. He's been a bad military leader. He's been a bad husband. He's been a bad servant of Jesus. We don't deserve for God to come to our aid, for him to be our shields. How does David know that God is his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head? Verse 4. How does he know that? The answer comes there. Because God has answered me from his holy hill. 
The holy hill in the Old Testament is a euphemism. It's a multi-layered euphemism. It refers to Zion. What does Zion refer to? Well, Zion refers to multiple things. They become more narrow as it's in various places depending on the context. Zion refers to Jerusalem, which was stood on top of a hill. But more profoundly is Zion and the holy hill actually refers to the tabernacle mount. It refers to the place where God's glory dwelt, where sacrifices that atoned for David's sins were made for him. You see, David remembers that even though he is geographically distant from the tabernacle, he recognized that God has God abandoned the tabernacle? No, God has not left. David's circumstances may stink, but God is still the same. And God's presence is still with Israel, and his presence is still with David. And not only that, but remembers the holy hill. And what speaks from the holy hill is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice on David's behalf. Brothers and sisters, how do we know that what threatens our souls... How do we know if they are lies? How do we know that God is indeed, that we can have confidence and encouragement despite our sins? How can we know that God is still our shield about us despite the fact that we don't deserve it? Despite our circumstances, how can we know that? Because there was a voice that screamed, that spoke, that yelled from a holy hill. Where was Jesus crucified? On a hill. Because there is a hill from which God has answered once and for all. We can say with confidence, my God is for me no matter the circumstances. His glory can never be taken from me no matter what life brings me. He is still my shield. And in fact, I can be joyous and confident in the midst of all things. Because he will never forsake me. He will never leave me. He will always be near me. Can you say that? Perhaps you need to preach to yourself a little bit more instead of listening to yourself. You need to talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. When your daughter comes and says, I want to go on a missions trip, and everything within you screams, run away! (laughs) You got to preach to yourself, my God is for me. Even if my daughter gets taken away from me, God is my glory, and I will serve that glory. When your financial world is in upheaval, God is my glory. He will not forsake me. He is my confidence. I am afraid, God, but I'm bringing my fears to you. I want you to see something about this psalm as we come to a close this morning, what it looks like to have confidence and faith in the face of fear. David shows us what it looks like to face our fears in the Lord. So Luke tells us, shows what it is to process before the Lord, to answer with the Lord, with the character and work of God, and finally to face our fears in the Lord. The scene in which David is writing if you can actually pinpoint the moment in time, is between verses 5 and verses 6. In a phrase there. Seeing which he's writing, it goes from past tense to future tense. He reflects on what has happened the day before and all the horrible things that have happened to him and the fears that he has felt. Then he, he, he reflects on all the wonderful answers that he has proclaimed to himself the night before. That after a day of fleeing, he's come and he has thrown himself before God and he's preached to himself, these are the truths that God is for me, that God is my shield, that God is my lifter of my head, that God answers me from his holy hill. And then what happens? What happens? David sleeps. You see, when David is writing this verse, it's it's first dawn. He's just woken up. And he is facing a day, is it any other day? No, he's about to face a day in which he's going to face his own son in battle in an enormous army in which they're surrounded. The odds are against him. Life stinks. He has much to be afraid of. This is the morning when he's writing this. He's reflecting on the day before, and then he wakes up and says, but last night I slept. See, here's what it looks like to face our fears with confidence. It means that you rest. And and the first activity when your confidence is in the Lord Jesus is to do nothing. It's inactivity. Facing our fears in the Lord looks different than taking control of your fears. You see, our response is to take control, to run around like a chicken with our head cut off when we're afraid. 
What happens when you go into financial trouble? I mean, you're contacting everybody. You're selling off stuff. You're running around. You're suddenly you know, doing a budget, and you're cutting corners, and you're, you're frantic. What happens when you find your security and confidence in the Lord? You go to bed. You get some sleep. You rest. Listen, first it begins with a spiritual rest, a soul rest in all of God, all that God has done to provide for you. But it ends up being a physical rest. You see, some of you, some of you cannot sleep at night. You ever had this experience? You go to bed, your mind is going a thousand miles an hour because of all the weight of the world is upon you. And you're trying to carry it. Or you're like me, you're so exhausted, I, I fall out. But then a child wakes up at three. I wake up, I tend for that child, I go back to bed and I've gotten just enough sleep. Guess who's up for the rest of the night? Me. Because I'm trying to control my fears and hold on to them. Here's, it would be so much better for so many of us if what we would do is we'd get up and we'd, do, we'd, we'd follow the example of Paul and Jesus and so many others who've gone before us. I was reading a couple, about a month ago, about um, one of my Audible. I was listening to my Audible account on a book about Stonewall Jackson. Now listen, Stonewall Jackson had many flaws, right? A man who defends slavery has flaws. But if we're going to simply, we're not going to learn from those who have flaws, then we're going to run out of any kind of people that we can look to, including Paul and David. So we can look to him as well. It was, it was well known that Stonewall Jackson, of, of just how he was known as Stonewall because of the how way he would face battle. That he could run through battle and seemingly be as calm as a cucumber. And not only that, that in the face of battle, he would often just go to bed. He could sleep through anything. Jesus did that too, right? Often life's difficulties and life's problems are seen as a storm. Jesus sleeps through a storm, doesn't he? His disciples are doing what? Bailing water out of life. I mean, they're, they're, everything is going wrong for his disciples. God, don't you care about us? Jesus, he's sleeping in the bow of the boat. Jesus trusts the Father. Paul does the same thing. Acts 27, right? They're, about to, they're in an incredible storm. Not only does Paul, is he remain calm because of assurance in Jesus Christ, but he actually calms everyone else. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a calming influence in the world around you? Perhaps the next time you find yourself left late at night trying to solve the world's problems or your world's problems, maybe instead you might need to get on your knees as David did and cry a little bit. And pray a little bit and then preach to your fears. That's the first thing David does. Now, Remember I said that David is writing between verses 5 and verses 6. This is a song, this psalm. It has three stanzas, all broken up, broken up by the word Selah. Now, there's a band called Selah. We have no idea what Selah means. We just read it because it's in there. We really don't. I mean, thousands of years of, of scholarship, and we still don't have any idea what Selah means. The best, the only place we've come to any kind of, there's been any kind of uh, sense of uh, consistent voice is that Selah is actually a musical interlude. Which would give rise, right, to when you actually have places in modern worship where you just have musical interludes and we're not singing. But, that, but we, there's, we actually have no confidence that that's what it's about. So, we'll move on from that. Selah. But it's broken up by three possible music in, musical interludes. These selahs, these instructions for how to sing this verse. And he comes to the last verse. And in the first verse, he, he, it's this voice of confidence that last night I slept like a baby in light of what God has done for me. And then he turns... And he faces the day. It goes to future tense. The last verse goes from past tense to future tense. It's the turn. And it comes to the last half of the last verse. And what we see is he says this. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. And you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. It is on the basis of David's confidence that he calls out to God to arise. Now, that word arise, we think of a, of a nice hymn, but it has great significance, that expression within the Old Testament and particularly in the Psalms. You see, commentators have found that whenever David and the other psalmists use this word arise, it is used in the context of walking into battle. Listen to this. Psalm 7, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Psalm 9, verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail over me. Let the nations be judged before you. Psalm 17, 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. 
And lastly, Psalm 74, 22, arise, O God, and defend our cause. When he says arise, you know what this is? David begins the last stanza by saying, I slept like a baby last night, and now I will turn my voice and my face to what is before me for today, and I will shout out what? It's a battle cry. It's a battle cry, brothers and sisters. It's a verse to sing on the way to war. Not only that, but it would appear that the last line, verse 8, is the last line that you're to sing as you charge. The Lord is my salvation. Bless the nation. You know, you charge for the union we charge. For the U.S. we charge into battle. For what, for some great cause I charge. He calls out, my salvation is before the Lord. May your blessing come upon our nation. A battle cry without entering battle, though, is silliness, isn't it? Who, who screams battle cries without going into battle? Little children and crazy people. <laughs> super, super nerds who like to uh, play battle as adults, right? Usually you find them at Civil War locations. Uber nerds. We make fun of people that scream battle cries and aren't actually going into battle. David is saying, listen, if you're going to shout a battle cry, your brothers and sisters, it means you're on the way to war. It means you're on the way to activity. Listen, the voice of fear is to run away, to make your world small, to push away from all the things that you're scared of. What David is saying this is this, that you, in the face of all of your fears, the one who is confident in the Lord will sing a song calling on God, and then you will scream charge and face the things that you face, the fears in your life. You don't run away from them. You don't give them credence in your life, but you are going to face them and you're going to deal with them. Let me just give you an illustration of this to come to a close. What if you have a rebellious child? Now, this is just simply this, this, what I'm going to communicate here is simply from experience, not from objective, but this is true all around. But how do moms traditionally deal with a rebellious child? They take control and they, they, they shrink their child's life. Don't they? More rules for my child. It was a midnight curfew. Now it's nine o'clock. My child's life will become smaller. More rules. So I deal with trying to control my rebellious kid. What's dad's response when they have a rebellious kid? What did, well, the tendency I've seen from most men is, man, we don't fight. We leave our wife to do that. Instead, what do we do? We disengage to the TV and to the hobbies We don't take up the task of engaging our child. In fact, many of us are afraid of our children. (laughs) And so because we fear inciting our children's wrath, men, what do we do? We run away. Like the idiots in Marty Python, we are crying out retreat by just simply hoisting up our skirts and saying, run away, run away, run away from my child. Listen, you want to engage obediently to be the father that God has called you to be. And you got to take up the confidence of Jesus. That listen, your daughter may hate you, but God, your father, is always going to love you. And you say, in that, I will go and face my daughter. I will enter into the battle with courage. I'll say, God is my salvation. God will fight for me to engage with my daughter or my son's heart. You might say, but I'm afraid she'll hate me. You're afraid, I'm afraid, I feel great fear still about all that faces me. Well, exactly. We have, this is called a life of faith, brothers and sisters. Let me say this. Faith is a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. What is faith? Faith is a confidence or assurance, which is another word for confidence, of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Brothers and sisters, you may still feel fear But the act of faith is to defy one's emotional state. Fears will come. They'll come today. They'll come tomorrow. You cannot keep them from coming. But you always have a choice to take your fears and to give them to the Lord, to answer them with the goodness of the cross and God himself, and then get to stand up, to get up and act. Call you to that. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that the folks in this room would do business 
with their own hearts and their own souls and acknowledging what they're afraid of. God, I love the truth that you don't, um, that when we've been a people who have um, served other gods, that we have believed the lies of the world about you, the true God, and yet still you encourage us to come to you, into your presence. Lord, such an encouragement allows us to be honest before you, to do right business with our hearts and our souls, to come to terms with what truly has us afraid, what we're afraid of losing, what we're afraid of experiencing. And then, gracious God, I, I pray that as we're in the midst of, of calling out to you, of, crying, of falling on our knees, of crying out for mercy, for your provision, of asking our questions, of confessing our questions to you, our doubts and our fears, that gracious Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would cry out by your Spirit, not a spirit of fear, as it says in Romans, but a spirit of sonship that says, Abba, Father. That we would hear the voice of God in our lives. That even when life's experience make you feel distant, that we would, get, we would draw closer to you in prayer and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would hear from you. And then, gracious God, I pray for those in this room who know how they're supposed to act this week. They're facing fears, but Lord, they've let the fears overcome them, to silence them where they should speak, to cause them to take control of their lives when they actually need to be engaging in mission. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that in the confidence that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we'd be able to step out, that we'd be able to rest and sleep tonight and then get up tomorrow morning and we would be able to act. Lord, maybe there's someone who has, on a last second, is afraid of taking up a class in VBS. <laughs> and they're scared of a bunch of little kids. They're frightful. But Lord, may, may someone stand up <laughs> and with confidence in Jesus Christ, take up the call and the task and the mission that you've given them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.